This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ed Pulford, one of the hosts of the channel. On the podcast today, we have Mark Gamza, who's Associate Professor of History in the Department of East Asian Studies at Tel Aviv University. And he'll be talking about his new book, Manchuria, A Concise History, which is being published this year, 2020, by Bloomsbury. For many people with even a passing interest in East Asia's past or present, Manchuria seems to retain a particular allure. What is this curious part of China that seems to have its own name? Is it even okay to refer to it as Manchuria anymore? Who were the Manchus, or who are the Manchus? And why is it that we also associate this place with Russia, Japan, Korea, not to mention the indigenous people who lived there before any of these states really turned up? Up to now, and somewhat surprisingly, there haven't been many obvious places to look for answers to these questions, and so Mark Gamza's Manchuria Accrued Concise History is therefore a much-needed work. Tackling the many interwoven strands of this region's experiences of empire and revolution, migration and modernism, Gamza draws on a decades of regional expertise to craft a highly readable and easily digestible account of this fascinating place. Conveniently broken down into well-targeted chunks which move us from one key event or era of tumult to the next, the book brings together in one place lots of otherwise disparate information, as well as shedding light on many overlooked sides to Manchurian life, from Russian emigre literature to the immediate post-1945 years in the region and the role of the Mongols in northeastern Chinese affairs. All this feeds into an account which throughout considers the relative merits of studying Manchuria as an entity at all, though the consistently fascinating tales that Gamza tells us here speak for themselves, I think, in justifying the exercise. But the author himself is here to tell us some of these tales, uh, and so I'll say, Mark Gamza, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Ed. Well, thank you for coming on. Um, Before we get into kind of the depths of, I guess, uh, Manchurian affairs over time, uh, perhaps I could begin by asking you something about your background and so on. Um, Your previous work has been a real kind of trove of insights for anyone interested in Northeast Asia or China-Russia matters and so on. So could you say something about how you got into this kind of uh, world and, and these relationships? Yeah. Well, I studied first at the Hebrew University of uh, Jerusalem, uh, then in China and in Switzerland. And later I spent nearly four years in Britain in Oxford, where I worked on my DPhil thesis at the Queen's College. That thesis was on the history of Russian-Chinese contacts in 
Harbin. Um, I had uh, two uh, uh, supervisors at the time, uh, the late Professor Glenn Dadbridge and uh, Professor Gerald Smith in Oxford. Uh, I chose Harbin because uh, when I spent a year in China, I uh, went there and got uh, quite hooked, uh, if that's the word. Um, so uh, Harbin and uh, more uh, broadly Manchuria became my uh, main subjects. Although I did some work also on the translation of Russian literature in China, which had been the topic of my uh, master's thesis at the Hebrew University, and some uh, other forms of uh, Russian-Chinese contacts. I see. And so uh, the languages, did you pick them up in the course of uh, living in uh, one or other country? I mean, what, what, how did the Russia kind of dimension come into things? Well, uh, Russian, fortunately, I never had to study, you know, uh, because it's my native language. And as to Chinese, I have been studying it for many years. I started in Jerusalem and then uh, spent also a year at the Nalco in Paris, a year in uh, China, where I lived in Wuhu, a small town in the province. And uh, then... Uh, well, and then I uh, continued to Geneva and to Oxford and right. went on studying Chinese all along, basically. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, it's a pretty uh, endless, I guess, a lifelong project, I think, for me. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but uh, uh, most recently, uh, as I mentioned in the intro, you've been in um, in Tel Aviv, in, uh, in, in Israel. Um, your project for this book, I believe, has some relationship to your current place there. So how did the actual book, uh, Manchuria, Concise History, come about? Yes, it was actually written in the course of a seminar on Manchuria, which I taught in Tel Aviv for about 10 years or so, or even more. Uh, This uh, idea I had was both to present this vast region and to place it in China and uh, within its many international connections as well. Mm. So it was going on as a kind of a manuscript in process until in 2017 at the conference, I met an editor of uh, Tauris at the time, the London publisher, which is now part of uh, Bloomsbury. And it uh, turned out that a book like this fitted them. So I signed a contract uh, for a manuscript of 70,000 words. And then this book eventually joined the Bloomsbury list in politics and international relations, which rather explains the the emphasis on these aspects in the book. Mm -hmm. Uh, Actually, I see that in 2019, they published also Michael Dillon's Political History of uh, Mongolia, which is a book of about uh, the same length as mine. And now I noticed that in March 2020, a book um, by uh, Rebecca Haynes, Moldova, A History, is coming out. So with this Manchuria, Mongolia, and Moldova, I suspect that they have a predilection for the letter M. <laughs> uh, but uh, more seriously, I wanted uh, sort of to put before the student or the general reader who has no prior knowledge of Manchuria, a coherent introduction. And I thought that a book uh, of this kind should draw on the available literature in English. And so I've uh, largely uh, resisted the temptation to send readers to sources in Russian or Chinese. Mm -hmm. 
And also for someone who likes going into very minute details, it has been an interesting challenge to make a book for a change from a bird's eye view. And this is a very different project. Well, yeah, and I think it does that job extremely well. I, there's no point at which I think one feels too uh, dragged into the, I don't know, uh, in, into the thick forests of southern Manchuria or the, I don't know, the, <laughs> yeah. the alienation of the northern plains or anything like that. So I think, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great work in that in that regard. Um, but that leads us pretty naturally into talking about the book and, and indeed, uh, in general, Manchuria as a region, uh, if we're calling it that indeed. Um, so uh, our listeners will obviously know something of the, uh, the the kind of history of the region, perhaps, or the existence of the region. But could you give us a picture of your own perspective on uh, Manchuria, how you conceive of it, how big is this area uh, that you're terming in the book Manchuria? Um, and uh, actually, yeah, what are the issues around even calling it Manchuria? Well, uh, as to the size, you know, uh, Owen Lettimore, the famous uh, scholar of Manchuria and Mongolia, described Manchuria as uh, France and Spain combined. And that gives already uh, a fairly good uh, idea of the size. And now it's about 10% of the PRC today in terms of uh, territory. Uh, the historical definition of Manchuria within the Chinese borders, because some people actually speak of the greater Manchuria, which would then include also the Russian Far East. But um, within the Chinese borders, then we are speaking of the three provinces of the Northeast, which are Heilongjiang, uh, Jilin, and uh, Liaoning. The Northeastern part of uh, Inner Mongolia, and the city of uh, Changde, uh, north of uh, Beijing. So that's the, the territorial definition. As to the place name, it's a very peculiar place name, actually, because it was uh, used by foreigners, um, first by the missionaries, then by the Japanese, but uh, not by the Chinese. It uh, remains a standard usage in a Western uh, historical reference, uh, to this region until the mid-20th century. Uh, thereafter, I think that one should use the, the Northeast. So as soon as you speak of the period um, after 1949, the, uh, the establishment of the PRC. And, and indeed, if this book is ever translated into Chinese, the title would then become Dongbei uh, and not Manchuria. And could you give us a sense of what the reasons are for that change in terminology? I mean, are there, what are the, I guess, uh, political or historical reasons that you wouldn't call it Manchuria after 1949? Yes. Well, uh, uh, for the Chinese, uh, speaking of Manchuria at the moment makes no sense because the, the only association that it creates is with the Manchukuo state. And when the Chinese do speak of the Manchukuo state uh, created by the Japanese from 1932 to 1945, they uh, add the character way of false or puppet to it mm -hmm. to make it entirely clear that it was not a real country. Um, so uh, in that sense, the use of Manchuria in China is uh, pretty sensitive. Mm -hmm. And, uh, well, I'm limiting it to to the, uh, the, the historical period in which it was 
known by this name, um, as I say, by foreigners in um, all the languages, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, other than Chinese itself. Right. And that makes sense. Um, and so why is it that you think this region deserves particular attention within our general consideration of China and East Asia at large? Well, for uh, uh, many reasons, uh, because of its uh, sheer size, which I mentioned, its close uh, connection to the last dynasty, the, the, the Qing dynasty, uh, and because of it being a border region with a particularly turbulent history, which I think uh, come across, uh, comes across uh, in the book, and because of certain a certain shared uh, trans-provincial identity. So across these three provinces today, people do feel that they belong to this region which they call Dongbei. So that too makes it possible to study it as a whole, um, even at the present time when we no longer call it by the name Manchuria. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now that, that does make sense. And I guess uh, the sort of as we get into talking about the contents of the book and the history of the area, it also becomes clear that uh, the importance of the region also lies in the fact that so many different groups of people and, and so many different important events, I guess, have uh, happened in this one place or across this one place, if we're calling it one place, despite its massive size. Um, but uh, as you take us into the book then in uh, in part one, it's, it's a t- two-part book, uh, essentially divided between a historical kind of succession of chapters, um, uh, 15 in all, uh, running from, I guess, uh, the earliest time of of uh, particularly a Manchu presence or Manchu um, uh, rise in Manchuria up to uh, the Mao era and and even a bit beyond. And then a second part, which deals with uh, each part, each region of Manchuria or of Dongbei, uh, province by province, uh, as well as discussing a little bit some of the contemporary historiography of the region. Um, so at the beginning of part one, we discuss uh, the kind of ethnic makeup, if you like, at the very kind of, um, uh, I guess, some of the uh, earlier indigenous inhabitants uh, that I mentioned in the intro. So um, who were the people living uh, in Manchuria, and indeed many of them are still living there, uh, it should be said, um, who are who are not necessarily um, people we would immediately call Chinese or, or, uh, or, or let alone Russian or Japanese? Uh, well, uh, this is really the question that uh, comes to mind when you think of uh, the natives of this region, in the sense the people are native to it, uh, who considered the Manchuria their uh, natural home, even though they never called it like that. Uh, they didn't use this name, Manchuria. Um, well, certainly the Manchus, though their own relations with this region is again very complicated in the sense that most of them left it already in the 17th century after the conquest of China. But still it was considered as this ancestral land of of the Manchu people. And then really those native peoples, these indigenous groups that you mentioned, the Elunchun, for example, in Heilongjiang, or the Heje, on which you yourself have done some work. Um, these are groups that hardly ever figure in any historical account of uh, Manchuria, uh, with the exception, I should really say, 
of the wonderful book by a Professor Jan Hunen of Helsinki University called Manchuria and Ethnic Portrait. There you can find wonderful chapters on the culture and the language of, uh, of these peoples. Uh, so I tried uh, to, to include them in the book, however uh, briefly, uh, just to make sure that the readers know that they were there and uh, the kind of life that uh, they led and their situation, quite a precarious one, between those two empires, the Russian and the Chinese, since they lived on both sides of the of the two great rivers, which became the borders between the two countries um, after um, uh, 1860, the, the Heilongjiang or the Amur and the Usuri. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, I mean, it's not quite so easy to separate in many ways, I guess, the Manchus per se from some of these groups, because uh, the way that the idea of the Manchus as a people came about was something that was that rested on, uh, I guess, some of these indigenous foundations, perhaps it's fair to say. Um, so how was it that this idea of the Manchus, uh, I guess, came into being? Um, and, and what sort of status did Manchuria obtain uh, under the Qing dynasty, which you've already mentioned, the last dynasty founded by Manchu people? Well, uh, they do come from this region and they were closely connected with these indigenous uh, groups that I mentioned before. But they rose as the most powerful force in Manchuria in the late 16th century. They uh, initially identified with the Jurchens, who had established the Jin dynasty in the 12th century. But then in the 1630s, something uh, very unusual happens. Their military leader, uh, a man called in Chinese Hong Taiji, uh, decides to uh, to uh, to abandon this historical association with the Jurchens, and now he decrees that his people are going to be called Manchus from now on. Uh, and the meaning of that name is actually still being uh, debated. There are several versions about what Manchu actually means. Uh, now, the story of the Manchu banners, which many Han Chinese people also joined, is a story that's quite uh, well known to everybody uh, who studies China. But then uh, what happens with the Manchuria after the conquest of China? Uh, so... Um, after 1644 is another story, and that's a far less familiar one, because um, historians of the Qing naturally focus on the court in Beijing, mm. and uh, much less on Manchuria itself. Now, uh, from the late 17th century to about the 1870s, so for uh, nearly uh, two centuries, the Qing banned uh, Han Chinese from settling in Manchuria. But the decision region was not uh, really sealed off in the sense that that ban existed in theory, but um, more, more in the theory than in practice. And the Chinese constantly entered uh, Manchuria secretly. And once the Qing actually adopted a new policy and started to, uh, to encourage this uh, migration from the 1870s, a whole human tide moved from North 
China to Manchuria, um, and uh, very soon created a Han Chinese uh, majority in that region, which was very sparsely populated. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, I guess that brings us on perhaps to the next group of people we might talk about in this picture, because at least in part, um, if I'm right in thinking, the reason for relaxing any notional restrictions on migration had something to do with the uh, appearance of Russia uh, around this part of the world. Um, It wasn't their first, I guess, foray into the Qing fringes, uh, because that occurred back in the uh, 17th century. Um, So uh, could you give us a picture of the kind of story of of Russian uh, in contact with the Qing from those early sort of skirmishes in the 17th century, and how then that evolved uh, over the ensuing decades and indeed uh, centuries up to the 19th century. Right. Well, it's a long story. (laughs) (laughs) Russia arrives in this region because it continues this expansion into Siberia, which it had started in the mid-16th century. And so eventually the Russian forces reach the, uh, the Amur River and there they meet the Qing and they are uh, uh, rebuffed by the Qing army. And the result of that is the famous Treaty of Nurchinsk in 1689, um, which is the first uh, diplomatic uh, treaty China ever signed. Um, and so that fixed uh, the border far um, to the north than uh, the border that uh, we know now. Uh, the border then, according to this uh, Treaty of Nerchinsk, was um, along the Stanovoy mountain range. And this was an arrangement that lasted for a very long time until the mid-19th century. But then at that period, China is very weak. Um, and during the Arrow uh, War, um, 1858 to 1860, the Qing dynasty cannot uh, protect those uh, borders any longer. And therefore, uh, Russia, by uh, basically negotiations without uh, firing a shot, is able to um, to uh, annex these uh, territories to the north of, of the Amur uh, River and then also to the east of the Usuri river and that uh, created the borders which we still have today on the maps and the region that we now call the Russian Far East. Mm -hmm. Then the Russians expanded uh, further uh, into Manchuria itself because um, uh, that was uh, connected to the uh, huge engineering project of the late Tsarist era, the construction of the Trans-Siberian Railway. And they decided to build the last leg of that uh, um, uh, railway by crossing into Chinese territory. So uh, through Manchuria, which would shorten the way. And uh, negotiations with the Qing again led to the conclusion of a contract, an agreement on that. And uh, they started building this uh, railway called the Chinese Eastern um, Railway, uh, completing it in 1903. And that was the direct reason for the construction of the city of Harbin, which was founded in uh, 1898 Mm -hmm. um, as the headquarters of this railway. Uh, 
Then uh, there's a twist in the plot because um, after 1917, of course, the former colonists in Manchuria become emigres. So those Russians um, now live there in a very different uh, situation than uh, the one that they had before the revolution when they were backed by, uh, by the Tsarist Empire. And then these people are being uh, joined in the 1920s by uh, refugees from uh, uh, Soviet Russia and especially Siberia. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the story uh, goes on. Uh, you see, in 1925, the, the Soviet Union signs an agreement with China to manage this railway uh, together. And from that point on... Um, uh, only citizens of those uh, two countries can actually work on the on the railway, and mm-hmm. the railways have no place in it. Right. Well, uh, it's a story that I try to tell in that book, uh, rather in brief, but it's the main focus on my other book, which is uh, coming out uh, later this year. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it? <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Got it, got it. Well, we'll perhaps yeah, get we'll on to that. Right, right. And we can maybe talk about that uh, shortly. Um, But kind of uh, in this picture of, uh, I guess, constantly shifting uh, authorities and and power centers uh, with some degree of control over um, Manchuria as a whole, but the China Eastern Railway is a pretty good stand-in for what's going on as the Russian Empire collapses and turns into the Soviet Union and as uh, also the Qing dynasty comes to its end and the Republic of China is founded and so on. Um, And into this sort of mix of uh, competing authorities over Manchuria comes another major power uh, as the Qing wanes, um, namely Japan. And so uh, I guess Japan serves as both China and Russia's main rival for influence for a period. Um, Why was it that Japan and Tokyo became interested in Manchuria and, and how did its uh, projects in the region, including the state of Manchukuo that you mentioned, uh, which creates such sensitivity today around using Manchuria. How did these kinds of projects evolve over time? Well, uh, Japan uh, first gained a foothold in Manchuria after winning the war with China over the control of uh, Korea. That's 1895. Uh, they occupied then the, the Liaodong Peninsula, but were very soon forced to return it to China because of uh, pressure from uh, uh, the European powers. And so uh, from then on, uh, southern Manchuria is a prize that Japan feels that it needs to, to uh, regain. And that's pretty much the background of the Russo-Japanese War. Uh, in 1904-1905, at the end of which uh, Japan does manage to get um, uh, a southern Manchuria as um, a region uh, where it builds the southern Manchuria Railway, 
it uh, takes hold of the city of Dalian, which the Japanese called Dairen, a city founded by the Russians as well. Um, and then, of course, in 1931 comes uh, this uh, local initiative of, of the Japanese army in that region, the, the Kwantung army, uh, leading to a military conquest of this uh, whole territory and the creation of the state of Manchukuo in the following year in 32. And so from 32 to 45, we have this uh, uh, so-called country, which is actually uh, headed by the last uh, emperor of the Qing dynasty, um, Hui. Mm-hmm. It uh, uh, breaks down, collapses in 1945 at the end of the war. Uh, it does leave uh, many traces, uh, both physical traces, if you think of a place like uh, Changchun, today the capital of uh, Jilin, uh, that was the capital of the state of Manchukuo, where they built uh, many new streets and uh, buildings. Uh, in Dalian, of course, as well, you can see the legacy of, of the Japanese there and in uh, the, the large industrial complexes, which uh, they built and left uh, behind then in, in uh, Manchuria. And then apart from this uh, tangible Legacy. There's also the memory of the Japanese rule, which was a very brutal one. In the Mao area, uh, in the, in the Mao era, these um, uh, memories were rather suppressed. But then, from the mid 1980s, the state actually begins to uh, to encourage the survivors to tell their stories, and the museums are being built, and. Um, Especially one focuses on the notorious unit uh, 731, which I mentioned in the book, uh, which conducted the biological uh, experiments on humans in Manchuria. And so uh, because of this, uh, this very strong emphasis on the brutality of the Japanese rule, the Manchukuo period, uh, quite a long one actually, 13 years, is being painted in the darkest colors. And yet, I think there was also room for normal daily life in those years, uh, which hasn't been studied enough. And another large issue here is the question of resistance versus collaboration and all the gray area in between, something which I also try to to, uh, touch on in the book. Mm, mm. And I mean, this may kind of touch on the... Uh, Harbin question as well that you mentioned is the subject of uh, of a separate book. But um, I just wonder, and it's a story that is also not often told, but how did the Russians uh, fare uh, in Manchukuo? I mean, within this Japanese-run state, what what, what was their sort of um, uh, fate having already, you know, been severed from uh, former Tsarist realm that had collapsed, uh, you know, while they were in Manchuria and they became emigres, as you said, what, what did they get up to uh, under Japanese rule? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, in 1935, the Soviet Union uh, sold the, the railway to Manchukuo, uh, thereby actually recognizing it, um, which not uh, many countries did. And uh, from then on, uh, the remaining Russians in uh, Manchuria were a small 
minority, which had to make many, uh, many compromises in order to get along with, uh, with the Japanese rulers. Um, there was a large movement of uh, repatriation uh, to the Soviet Union uh, immediately after the sale of the, uh, of the railway in 35. We ended in a, in a tragedy because uh, most of these people were then uh, well exterminated in the Stalinist purges of '37. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, suspected uh, spies for Japan or, or uh, whatever. And the remaining Russians uh, stayed in Manchuria until the 1950s. And they left it then because after the establishment of the PRC, it was entirely clear that they had no place there anymore. Um, the last, uh, the last of them remained until the 1960s, and, mm-hmm. and from then on, there were, well, maybe a dozen survivors of this uh, community in. Harbin, which at its peak may have counted around a quarter of a million people. Wow, wow. Um, that's a, I mean, yeah, a kind of set of chapters of history that I think uh, are you know, not so well known, but which you've, uh, bring, well, dedicated part of your career to shedding some light on. So that's great. Um, but as far as what happened to this railway, again, if we return uh, to the China Eastern Railway, once the Japanese colonial era had ended in 1945, and uh, I guess arguably uh, the Soviet Union could step back in if it wanted to and uh, kind of exert influence once again. The People's Republic of China was not yet founded. Um, So what happened in those kind of immediate post-war years after 1945, and then how did the Soviet Union kind of interact with the PRC over some of these Manchurian interests that it had. I mean, there's obviously a degree of complication around a socialist country with another socialist country next to it, um, asserting some kind of almost imperial interest over a region. Yes. Well, as for the attitude of the Soviet Union towards the the Russians uh, in Manchuria, uh, those uh, Russians who did not take a Soviet uh, citizenship and who remained uh, emigres were considered enemies of Russia. You know, they were called the uh, uh, white bandits and by many other names. And so the attitude towards them by the Soviet state was uh, highly negative. Uh, They were not likely to protect them from the Chinese or the Japanese or indeed from anybody else. Um, Then... uh, the presence of the Soviet Union in Manchuria is a very important one because uh, the Soviet Union in the summer of 1945 uh, invades Manchuria with a huge army, uh, defeats the, the Japanese there. These are actually the last battles of the Second World War and uh, establishes a control over Manchuria for about a year. So 45 to 46 um then the Soviet uh, um, army leaves it. But um, as you rightly point out, the, the 1950s are a period of this uh, very close uh, connection between the, the two states. It was the decade of the great friendship of the Soviet Union and a communist 
China and uh, Soviet uh, specialists, experts arrive in Manchuria, as they do also in many other parts of China. Uh, and they help the Chinese in many fields, in particular um, to develop these industrial complexes that were left from the Japanese period, huge factories of, uh, uh, and mines, of course. Mm. And um, uh, the Soviet Union helps in developing these. It should also be mentioned that the Soviets had taken home from Manchuria a uh, many uh, parts of the equipment and uh, a, so on of these uh, factories as a war booty, yes, in uh, 45 already. But then in the 50s, they do help the Chinese to develop them further. And there is a, a new community of uh, uh, Soviets who lives in the larger cities of uh, Manchuria during that period. And of course, it all ends uh, towards 1959, 1960, with the large uh, rift between the two uh, great uh, communist uh, states. And from then on, Russia is the enemy number one. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the Soviet Union is being denounced. Um, and that's, again, a whole new chapter in, in uh, Manchuria as well. Sure. Well, and it may be the first chapter in this sort of long saga of inter-country and inter-polity contacts across this region, that the region is definitively Chinese, if you like. It's part of the PRC and uh, for the first time doesn't have large numbers of you know other people, um, if we're looking from a Chinese perspective, uh, which we may not always, but uh, if, if, if at least we're looking from Beijing, there are not then all these other people meddling uh, in the region uh, for the first time, in, in, if you like, in the 60s. Uh, but given all of these sort of uh, tumultuous, interlocking, crisscrossing events and uh, imperial projects and socialist projects and so on, it may seem quite surprising that the region did end up uh, as part of China rather than as part of any other political body or indeed perhaps even as an independent one. Um, so what is it that you think ensured that that was the case? How is it that we still talk of this region? I mean, we don't just talk of it. It is a part of China uh, rather than anywhere else. Um, and was it migration, for example, that you highlighted earlier of Han people that mainly saw to that or are there other reasons? Well, yes, absolutely. In terms of the social history of the region and the demography, it is entirely clear that the Manchuria becomes uh, Chinese by the beginning of the 20th century. And uh, certainly the migration of uh, Chinese from Shandong and from Hebei provinces, which is estimated at about uh, 30 million people or more, uh, has entirely changed the makeup of this uh, region, both demographically and culturally, and in, and, and in terms of the languages being uh, spoken there as well. It is uh, considered one of the largest migrations in world history as a whole. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of main force, do you think, that keeps this uh, as a part of the Chinese world? Um, yes, and then you have to to bear in mind as well that in the 1950s, um, in view of all this, these large industrial projects, the Mao regime sends more people into Manchuria from 
China. So uh, there are the uh, pre-communist period settlers and there are the post-1950s one. And mm-hmm. they together have changed this region entirely. They have indeed made it uh, Chinese in every sense. Mm-hmm. And I guess it's some of these kind of later Maoist campaigns, I, I'm thinking of the um, Great Northern Wilderness or the Beida Huang uh, campaign to kind of claim or reclaim um, unfarmed uh, land and so on, I guess, that yeah does lock this uh, place in and give it a very uh, distinctive role within the more contemporary history uh, of the People's Republic. Um, so I guess that kind of gives us a pretty good sense of the broad sweep of uh, of the history of the area from uh, those kind of uh, early Manchu days, perhaps, uh, up to um, the more contemporary era. Um Moving into part two of the book, you, as I mentioned earlier, give us a kind of uh, province-by-province breakdown, um, which I think is extremely helpful in its own right, just for, you know, seeing in English the uh, history and geography of uh, Jilin or Liaoning or Heilongjiang, these three kind of northeastern provinces, uh, northeastern provinces, as well as uh, the Mongolian element. Um, So uh, could I just ask you, kind of uh, related to that, um, why was it that you felt it would be a good idea to break things up in this way and, and give pictures of these three provinces in their own right, since, as you say, they're often identified together as part of the Northeast? Yes. Well, uh, generally, there's been hardly any research, or maybe I should say too little research, on the Chinese provinces. And uh, speaking of Manchuria specifically, there are uh, two or three books in English that are specifically devoted to Heilongjiang, only two or three. There is no monograph on the Jilin province. There is, though, a book on the Changchun by Bill uh, Sewell that uh, came out in uh, 2018. Uh, and uh, there is no book at all on Liaoning. So in that sense, the second uh, uh, part of my book, which devotes separate chapters to these uh, provinces as well as to the Mongols in Manchuria and to Changde. Well, it's a very modest uh, constu- uh, contribution towards uh, remedying that uh, situation in which uh, um, there is so little in English that uh, you mm. read about these these uh, regions. And what, why is it? Do you think that we need to understand these sort of separate provinces uh, distinctively? Well, to put it very simply, because China is huge. You know, (laughs) and we often speak in these generalizations about China and the Chinese, and it's fine. But uh, as soon as you travel in China, for example, uh, you do notice the local identities, the importance of the local place, uh, the dialects too. And uh, therefore, it is, I think, very important to get uh, to, well, a lower uh, scale mm. when dealing uh, with the region mm. and uh, to try to get well uh, their maps of, of of the provinces in the book you know to get uh, to get a grip on that on right on the local picture as well and not just on the bird's eye view as I put it before 
Sure, and yeah, all the more so in an area which is generalized as uh, Dongbei today, just as it was generalized as Manchuria in the past. I mean, I think uh, very noticeably, you know, I've spent a period living in Jilin, for example, and Jilin people definitely have plenty of uh, their opinions about what Heilongjiang people are like and why we don't want all these Heilongjiang types wandering around, and even non Han groups that live in these different provinces. I mean, uh, Koreans, for example, in Jilin, in, in Yanbian, the Korean autonomous area there, will distinguish very uh, uh, readily between themselves and the Heilongjiang Koreans. And I should say the Koreans as a group that we haven't discussed much at length here, but they're also a key kind of uh, people within the picture of the Northeast. Um, but just to kind of wrap up in terms of our view of the Northeast as a whole, the other subject you touch on in this second part of the book is uh, New Qing history, um, a field of uh, historical study of the Qing dynasty, which has uh, gained a lot of uh, attention in recent uh, last couple of decades, I suppose, in particular. Um, What do you think it is that New Qing history has contributed to our understanding of this region and the role that it and its people have played in China's recent past? Well, I certainly think that there's a lot of merit in studying the Qing as an empire which uh, enlarged and uh, redefined China. And especially if the alternative to this is just seeing the current borders of the PRC as something natural and self-evident. No borders are. Uh, And then uh, the other thesis of uh, the New Qing studies is the focus on the Manchus and on their sense of uh, distinctiveness uh, within China. And this undermines the famous narrative of the cynicization of of, uh, the Manchus, which I think is a very useful thing as well. And in in my own uh, uh, research on uh, Harbin, I've certainly seen that the influence went in both directions. Uh, Although Mm. the Manchus did lose their language and they were clearly influenced by the Han in many ways, there were also Manchu influences on the Han population in Manchuria. Mm, mm, interesting. Um, but this is obviously also a field of study which has kind of, <laughs> I guess, drawn a degree of uh, controversy in China itself. Um, what is it that the Chinese authorities uh, don't like about New Qing history, do you think? I mean, maybe that's putting it a bit bluntly, but there, are, there do seem to be some objections. Um, why, why is it that do you think this doesn't appeal to them? Well, I think the most uh, thorny question here is the matter of the borders. Um, well, uh, as soon as you, as you acknowledge that these borders are the result of particular historical developments that they were contingent on them. And they are not the natural borders of China and the Chinese nation. Um, well, that uh, clashes with the narrative that is now uh, being taught in the PRC schools. Uh, and then, uh, of course, uh, China has very much uh, tried to cynicize the Manchus in in uh, every sense, uh, uh, making them just um, another Chinese dynasty, uh, which uh, current uh, research actually shows that was not exactly the case. The Manchus did not just uh, one bright day start to think of themselves as Chinese. Uh, they did uh, retain certain parts of uh, an identity that was uh, particular to them 
and uh, this uh, research uh, certainly has uh, brought out those aspects. Mm, mm. No, absolutely right, and I think, um, although not uh, necessarily or not not really a, a work of uh, that particular historical strand itself, I think this book also contributes very well to um, uh, revealing the contingencies and the non-automatic uh, nature of of borders and and of indeed the people who live in certain areas. I think uh, Manchuria as a whole is somewhere that uh, exposes lots of these things extremely well. Um, So thank you very much for talking to us about it today. Um, Before we actually let you go, uh, having taken up a fair chunk of your time, I thought I'd ask you, Mark, uh, what is it uh, that you're currently working on? You mentioned this Harbin book. Would you like to talk a bit more about that or other kinds of projects that you have uh, on the go? Uh, well, the Harbin book has been a particularly long uh, project, uh, and I'm very glad it's now uh, finally over, and the book is uh, is is expected to come out from uh, University of uh, Toronto Press in about November or December this year. And then I've started uh, working on another project, which will be on uh, gold mining. Uh, the history of uh, gold mining uh, across the borders of the Russian Far East and uh, Manchuria uh, between the 1880s and the 1920s. And so far, the title for it that I have in mind is The Forgotten Gold Rush. Mm. But uh, we'll see how it uh, develops. Fantastic. Well, no, I think that'll be uh, that'll be another yet another great illumination of the uh, <laughs> the, the life of and the history of this region, which uh, you've already shed so much uh, valuable light on from the points of view of history and literature and culture and all the rest. So, uh, sounds great, and we'll look forward to, to reading it. I'm sure. Um, in any case, though, Mark, uh, thank you so much again today for uh, being on the show. It was wonderful talking to you. Thank you very much, Ed. It was a pleasure. Uh, Listeners, thank you too for listening as ever to New Books in East Asian Studies. It's a podcast channel on the New Books Network, and it will be back with you again very soon. Goodbye.